Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 551 with Dan Heath. Dan is going to share how you can solve problems before they start to save a whole bundle of time, energy, frustration, annoyance, and firefighting. Ah, what a relief it is. So you'll learn one, the power of upstream thinking, two, how to get to the root of problems, and three, how to avoid the blame game at work. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, drop on buyawesomeatyourjob.com slash ep551 or tap that right in your podcast app player's show notes or description. Now, here's Dan's story. Dan Heath and his brother Chip have written four New York Times bestselling books, Made to Stick, Switch, Decisive, and The Power of Moments. Heath is a senior fellow at Duke University's Case Center, which supports entrepreneurs fighting for social good. He lives in Durham, North Carolina, and the Heath Brothers books have sold more than 3 million copies worldwide and have been translated into 33 languages. Big thanks to Dan for sharing his wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. And big thanks to our sponsor, Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. NerdWallet.com, whom I love on these sorts of matters, gives Acorns a whopping 4.7 stars and says, quote, if you want to make the most of your spare change, there's no better place to do that than Acorns. Head to acorns.com slash awesome or download the acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today and we got a legal disclaimer here it may not be representative of all clients tier one compensation provided compensation provides an incentive to positively promote acorns view important disclosures at acorns.com awesome investing involves risk including the loss of principal please consider your objectives risk tolerance and acorns as fees before investing acorns advisors llc acorns is an sec registered investment advisor brokerage services are provided to clients of acorns by acorn securities llc member finra slash sipc for more information visit acorns.com now, here's Dan. Dan, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on. Well, I am so excited to be speaking to you in person and digging into the wisdom of your book here, Upstream. And so I want to maybe hear from you on the personal side, talking about preventing problems instead of reacting to them. Is there an area in your own life where you've applied some upstream mindset principles to get some good results? <laughs> Yeah, there actually is one, and it's so utterly mundane, I'm almost embarrassed to share it, but uh, here was my epiphany. And, and keep in mind, this was while I was writing a book on upstream thinking, and by upstream, I mean the quest to solve a problem before it happens. So anyway, I, as you know, am a writer, and for whatever reason, I tend to do my best writing in coffee shops. So I have this coffee shop I go to every morning, and I sit in the same place, and I order the same thing. And so as a result of that, I'm constantly shuffling my laptop back and forth. I have a proper office uh, that stays largely abandoned. And then I go to this coffee shop to write. And so I go to the coffee shop, I plug in the laptop. And then when it's time to go, I pack everything up. I pack up the power cord. I get back to the office. I, you know, unwind the power cord, plug it in there. And it's just a lot of power cord shuffling. And it's just like an everyday annoyance. And I've been doing this for years. I mean, for years, I'm packing up, unpacking my power cord, couple times a day. And then in the quest of the, or in the course of this research, it occurs to me, Hey, what if I bought a second power cord? 
And one of them could stay in my backpack when I go to the coffee shop. And one of them could stay permanently wired on my desk. So when I get back and I put my laptop down, I just easily plug it in. And it was like this, this great relief where this, this little everyday annoyance was just gone forever. And then I started kicking myself, like, how could I get in this mode where for years, I mean, it's not like this was some major hardship, obviously, but it was an annoyance and it never needed to be one. And, and that's the spirit of, of upstream the book in, in a very mundane personal story. Well, no, I actually totally connect and relate to that. And I think about travel, you know, in terms of I'm always sort of reassembling my toiletry bag, uh, 311, and yes. it's like, just get two of the things and just leave it in the exactly. case forever. Yeah. So lessons learned. Well, and, and I think this is also true in, in relationships. Like every couple has something that they bicker about, you know, oh, you, you left the toilet seat lit up again. And, uh, you know, there's just some recurring irritant, maybe many, depending on your relationship. And so I, I also got to talk to some people who'd figure out how to solve those kinds of problems. I, I met this guy named Rich Marisa and he and his wife, their thing was the hallway light. So Rich would go outside often just to take the dog out or something. And he would flip the hallway light on. He'd come back in and he would inevitably forget to turn the hallway light off. And that bugged his wife. And so this was just like a little nagging problem for them. And one day, Rich Marisa has this epiphany. He realizes, hey, we don't ever have to do this again. I've got it. Like, I know how to crack this. And so uh, the next day, he filed for divorce. Oh. No, I'm kidding. I'm totally. That's just a, just a cheap joke. No, what he did was he went to um, Home Depot and he bought something I didn't even know existed, which is called a light switch timer. And this is like a little panel that goes where your light switch is. And there's buttons on it with different time stamps. So he can just press the five minute button. The light comes on. And after five minutes, it turns itself off. And what is just so profound to me about this, I know these are little things, but, but it's just a signal that in our lives, it's so easy to get into these patterns where we can fight the same problem again and again. And it's like it takes a miracle for us to, to snap awake and realize, hey, with the right intervention, this could be gone forever. Mm. Yes, you know, that's resonant and it's exciting. And I think it really just, um, even for the relationship itself, I mean, you know, that is a loving action. You know, that's going to say, hey, honey, I heard you. I've listened to you and I'm doing something about it. And so not only do we have that irritant gone, but we have kind of, a, oh, that was really nice of you. Thank you going for you. If only, if only more of our relationship problems could be addressed with a $10, you know, gizmo oh, yeah. from Home Depot, <laughs> the world would be a better place. Home Depot on Valentine's Day. <laughs> <laughs> A peak day for them. Um, well, cool. Well, so then we talk about upstream and this notion of solving problems before they happen. I'd love to hear, have you made any particularly surprising counterintuitive discoveries, you know, about our human nature while digging into this stuff? I think what really captured me about this topic, because I've been thinking about this, I, I checked the other day and literally my first Word file where I started taking notes on this upstream topic was in 2009. So this has been on my mind a long time. And what kept me with it really involved the definition of a hero. So when I say hero, what, what associations start popping to mind? It, you know, it's probably a policeman or a firefighter or a first responder or a lifeguard who saves someone. You know, it's people who save the day. That's a hero. And it occurred to me at a certain point that there's a whole nother class of people who keep 
the day from needing to be saved. You know, some someone invented a smarter building code that reduced the incidence of fires in buildings. And someone else consulted with lifeguards at public pools and taught them how to scan the pool in a better way and to position their chair in a smarter place. And a high school coach who's mentoring teenagers in a way that keeps them out of trouble with the law. And these are upstream heroes. These are people who stop emergencies from happening. And yet they hardly ever get any glory. Mm -hmm. In fact, their work may be largely invisible. We may have no idea what they did. I mean, how would we? How would we know that the consultant at the swimming pool kept a child from drowning one day? And so that that idea just captured me that there's this whole invisible set of heroes whose identity we may never know, even though they're having a profound influence on us. Mm. Yeah, that is powerful. And you've got a number of excellent tales that um, you've got some of the best story teasers on the back of your book that I've ever encountered. So <laughs> well done. Well Thank done, you. you and editor and team for those. So maybe let's just bring this to life with a little yeah. couple of those. All right. So there's a school district. They had an issue with dropouts and they did something upstream to prevent a whole lot of dropping out. How's that story unfold? Oh, this is one of my favorites in the book. So this is the Chicago Public School District, massive school district. I mean, this this district has a six billion dollar budget, which is the same as the city of Seattle. So when you talk about a difficult change environment, I mean, this is it. And if you want to hear a depressing stat. Back in uh, 1997, the graduation rate at CPS, Chicago Public Schools, was 52%. Like, if you were a student at CPS, you basically had a coin flips chance of graduating. And it had been true for years. And in a situation like that, people start to habituate to that level of success. You know, if you're a teacher, an administrator in this system, you certainly bemoan the fact that you've got a poor graduation rate. You regret it. But it almost comes to seem inevitable, you know, that, well, it's a shame, but this is a complicated world. These kids come from difficult environments. Their K through eight education didn't serve them very well. And so what are we going to do about it? Well, there was a point that came when they realized maybe we can do something. So some academics, uh, including Elaine Allensworth, figured out that there was a test they could perform in the ninth grade year that could predict with 80% accuracy which students would graduate and which wouldn't. And in the test, I don't mean like the SAT. All I mean is the test was, did the student take five full-year course credits and pass them successfully? And did they fail more than one core course, core course like math or English? And if they received five full-year credits and they didn't fail more than one course, one was okay, but two was a real warning flag, then that meant they were off track for graduation. And so for the first time, it's like they had a kind of smoke detector for dropouts. They had advance warning. They had time to do something about it. And so this becomes a way of opening the door to changing the way the system worked. And some of the things they did, I'll, I'll give you two examples. One was they realized some of their own policies were sabotaging kids. So this was like the, the get tough on discipline era in schools. And it was routine at the time. You know, if a couple of kids shoved each other in the hallway, they'd get a two-week suspension. They just doled those out like candy. But the research shows if you take a kid who's kind of on the borderline and you kick them out of school for two weeks, what happens is they come back, they're lost, they feel bad that they're lost, they end up failing the course. And then if they fail a couple of courses, they're off track for graduation. 
you know, it's this absurd situation where nobody realized that by handing out a two-week suspension, they might well be dooming them to dropping out of high school. But that's what the research showed. The other thing is they they reorganized the way that they worked. So all of the freshman teachers, you know, traditionally, they would just stick to their own within a discipline. The math teachers would meet with math and English with English and so forth. Now they formed what they called freshman success teams where they met across departments and they would go student by student. I mean, they would be sitting around a table literally saying, okay, Michael, how, how are his grades in his subjects right now? How's his attendance been the last couple of weeks? Have we been calling his home when he's missing school? Can we get him some extra tutoring? And they're figuring out on the fly how to take these kids who are at the risk of being off track and getting them back on track. And what happens is as the years go by and as they learn how to get ahead of these problems, how to encourage attendance, how to get extra resources for the students who need it, they start moving the needle. They start moving the needle at the freshman level. More and more students are, are now on track versus off track. And then four years later, when it comes time to graduate, this early warning system pays off. And now the graduation rate in CPS is something like 78 or 79%. I mean, I can't overstate the magnitude of a change that has to happen in a system like CPS to move the graduation rate by 25 points. It's just astonishing work. And for every student that graduates that in an alternate reality probably would have dropped out without this work, their lifetime income is going to go up by three dollars to $400,000. I mean, this is a, a massive, massive effort that started with the upstream notion to think, hey, what if we could prevent some of these kids from dropping out? Mm, absolutely. So that's so powerful right there is like, what is the smoke detector or the early warning system, which then in turn lets us prioritize and wisely concentrate resources or interventions to prevent the issue from occurring there. So I think that can have all kinds of applications and all kinds of settings uh, professionally and personally in terms of what might make a high performing, high potential employees want to drop out, you know, or exit the organization. Yeah. What are some of those tests you could run? That's actually a great example. And, and I think a lot of organizations, you know, we, we, we constantly hear about the big data revolution. And I think in many cases it's overblown, but I think this is one case where it's not, where what data is so powerful at doing is figuring out ways to detect that problems are coming. I've spoken with a number of HR leaders that have figured out very diagnostic tests for knowing when employees are in trouble, when they're at uh, the risk of leaving. I'll give you another example on the customer side. So LinkedIn, we all know LinkedIn, they sell uh, a very expensive package to employers who are doing a lot of recruiting on the site and it's a subscription. What they figured out years ago is the way it would work is is the employers would subscribe to an annual thing. And then about month 11, uh, the sales reps would start really uh, putting the full court press on the customers just to make sure that they were going to renew because that's how everybody was measured is, mm -hmm. is what's the retention rate. And churn, as most of you probably know, churn is a measure of how many people are are not renewing. And so churn is always what you're fighting in a subscription business. And so they would send in, you know, the rescue troops in month 11 to make sure these customers are going to renew. And somebody started digging through the data and they made a, a curious discovery that they could predict as early as the first four weeks of a customer subscription, who was likely to renew and who wasn't. And at first they were puzzled. They were like, how, how could we possibly know from the very start who's going to renew and who's not? You would think that 
you, you would take time to figure that out. And they dug in and they realized the deal was people either got value from LinkedIn almost immediately or they never did. Yeah. So they realized, aha, we've got to get out of the business of rescuing customers and we've got to get in the business of making sure customers have a bang up first month. And so they put a lot of resources into onboarding customers and they would do a lot of handholding where, you know, if you're hiring a developer in Atlanta, they would get on the phone with you and, and walk you through step by step. Okay, here's how to define your target profile. And I've actually written some copy for you for emails that you can send out to prospects. And the effect of this work is over a period of four or five years of memory serves, churn rate was cut in half, uh, even as the company's revenue absolutely exploded. And, and that is an intervention that's probably worth tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars in value, simply by paying attention to how can we see problems before they happen? Mm, yeah, that's huge. And it totally makes sense in terms of you're getting the value or you're not getting the value. And you can know that pretty early. So Dan, let's say, hey, keep it going with these stories. So you also mentioned there's an online travel website and they were able to cut 20 million customer service calls by doing something a little different with their website. What was that? This story is almost hard to believe. So this is a story about Expedia. And in 2012, there's a guy named Ryan O'Neill that was digging through a bunch of data and he found something that that even today I find hard to believe, which is that at that time, for every 100 customers who booked travel, you know, a flight or a hotel or a rental car or whatever, 58 of the 100 would end up calling the customer support center for some kind of help. Wow. Which would seem to nullify the whole point of the online travel model. It's, it's sort of like if you went to a gas station where you could swipe your credit card at the pump and then 58 out of 100 times something went wrong where you had to go inside, like you'd be pretty irritated with that business. And so he starts to dig in, well, what in the world is going on? Why are so many people calling us? He figures out the number one reason that people are calling is to get a copy of their itinerary. That's it. Number one, 20 million calls were placed in 2012 for people asking for a copy of their travel itinerary. And he's just kind of slapping himself on the forehead. And he's thinking, how could this happen? Well, there's a good reason why it happened. I mean, Expedia is a big profitable business. It's not like these people were ignorant or unskilled. What happened was they were organized to neglect this problem. So there was a whole set of people whose job it was to get customers to the site. And then there was a whole nother set of people whose job it was to make sure that people who came to the site ended up booking something. And there's a whole nother set of people whose job it was to keep the website running smoothly. And a whole nother set of people who was, whose job it was to take the customer's calls and resolve them quickly. But if you look across this whole ecosystem and you ask, whose job is it to make sure customers never need to call us? The answer was nobody. It's nobody's job. And in fact, it was even worse than that, that nobody would even benefit if that were true. And so the top executives at Expedia realize they've got a problem and they, they form um, a, a, a special task force and put them in a war room and they challenge them, hey, let's keep these customers from needing to call us. That's the shift upstream, you know, rather than get more efficient at handling customer calls, which had been the way they'd measured themselves to date. Let's just keep these calls from happening. And the solutions came very quickly, as you'd well imagine. They gave customers ways to get their own itinerary and they added, you know, different trees to the to the IVR, you know, press two if you need a copy of your itinerary. And they changed the way they sent the emails with itinerary so they wouldn't get in the spam folder. And what happens is, you know, those 20 million calls essentially vanish. I mean, they go to, to zero. 
over a, a very short period of time. And I think what this tells us is, is something interesting, which is organizations always push for specialization. You know, we're divided into silos, we're pressed to specialize, and there's good reason for that. I mean, it makes things more efficient. It makes us more productive, but it can also be a deterrent to solving really thorny, complex issues because we stay in our silos and those silos create blinders. And so all of a sudden, really obvious questions like, hey, why do all these customers need to call us if we're an online website? It's like it gets purged from our existence because of the way we're organized. And I think that's the promise is if if you're listening right now and you're in a big organization, let me promise you, there are issues just like this, these silo spanning issues that are waiting for someone to discover them and organize a response. And that's that's the upstream mindset. Mm -hmm. And those are great opportunities to bring your career upstream or up the hierarchy when you identify and you get proactive and, and then you make some real value happen by tackling it. That's huge. Exactly. Well, so then we've heard some fun stories and I want to get your view on kind of what are the, the fundamental principles or key questions to ask to surface these opportunities all the more readily and to not let them just sit under the radar for months and years. Yeah, let me identify. I've got a couple of, of skills that I think people can, can consciously build that will make them better upstream thinkers. And, and the first is anytime you're trying to prevent a problem before it happens, you're going to be dealing with, with complicated systems. And you've got to understand the system. And, and in particular, you've got to find some point of leverage, you know, somewhere you can tinker with the system to get a different result. So in the case of the Chicago Public Schools, they had this discovery that, hey, ninth grade is the critical time when we can take a student who's off track and get them back on track. So one way to, to get closer to problems, to identify a point of leverage is, is to immerse yourself in the specifics of the problem. So I'll give you an example. There's a organization called the Crime Lab that's associated with the University of Chicago, and they do a lot of research on what policies could potentially help reduce the crime rate. And so years ago, during the, the, the forming of the Crime Lab, they were asked to work on the problem of gang violence, which is a recurring problem in Chicago. The problem they were asked to work on was, was homicide. Uh, and, and the lore was that the homicides were the result of gang violence. And so they started by questioning that premise and, and tried to get closer to the problem. And the way they did it was they went to the medical examiner who, who always writes a report on why young people died or why anybody died. And they went through the last 200 reports of homicides of young people, and they just read through the situations to train their intuition. And yes, there were some that were the result of, of gangs jockeying for power or what have you. But what was far more common was a situation where some teenagers got in a fight over something stupid. You know, one example was a couple of groups of guys one of the groups accused one of the guys on the other group of, of stealing someone's bike and the fight escalated. And, you know, in some places, a fight like that might have ended in, you know, throwing some fists. In this case, one of the kids had access to a gun and somebody got shot. And that became what they discovered in these medical examiner reports as they got closer to the problem they saw this is not fundamentally about gang violence, that if we want to intervene to reduce the number of homicides, we've got to somehow be able to speak to these 
situations that are normal teenage disagreements that escalate out of control. And what they eventually did is they created a program that trained young men in high schools how to how to resist that urge to go nuclear when you get mad or when you get in a disagreement to build you know a little bit of uh, self control and 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 reflectivity in situations like that. But the way they discovered that point of leverage, which turned out to be quite successful, was by getting closer to the problem. Another example, of the same thing that I write about in the book is. There were some architects that helped design big public spaces like airports, and they'd been asked to to think about how to make those spaces more more convenient and more accessible to uh, to older adults. And these were young architects, so you know how do you get closer to an issue like that when when you're not in the target population? And they discovered something that's called an age simulation suit, which is something you can wear to help you feel, not, not just learn about or not just hear about, but feel for yourself what it's like to be older. So there are elbow braces that mimic the reduced movement you get in your elbow joint. And as you age, you lose dexterity in your fingers. So they have these gloves that simulate the loss of dexterity. And they wear something called overshoes, which simulate nerve loss in your feet which makes it a little bit harder for you to perceive where the ground is. And so they wear these age simulation suits and they walk around DFW just to feel what it's like to be old. And, and any business traveler listening to this knows DFW will make you feel old just in general, much <laughs> less without an age simulation suit. But they start figuring out, hey, we need a, another step on the escalator because it's really hard to get your balance when it's moving as quickly as it is. And they realize that that there aren't enough opportunities to take a rest, you know, that these big hallways are intended to help people get where they need to get quickly, but, but older people need breaks and, and there just aren't good spots where they can, you know, put their hand on a railing or, or take a seat for a moment and they realize they need some rest stops. So, so just to zoom out to the bigger issue here, what I'm saying is whatever industry you're in, whatever role you have, there's always going to be recurring problems in your organization. And one s systematic way that you can get better at helping your organization solve those problems is to be the person who has the instinct to get closer to the problem, to go through those medical examiner reports, to put on an age simulation suit, to give yourself a better instinct about what it's like to navigate these spaces. I think that's an upstream skill that we can all cultivate. Certainly. And I imagine the hang up and the reason people don't do that is they might say, oh, my gosh, who has time to look at 200 of these reports or to find, you know, this special suit and to go through it. And so I guess in the moment, I would imagine that can feel like, where will I find the time? But if we zoom out, boy, I imagine there's huge multiples of time saved associated with doing the stuff. You have put your finger on what, what may be the, the fundamental tension of upstream thinking. And, and I want to tell you about a study that I think really brings this tension to life. So that a woman named Anita Tucker, who's just a fascinating thinker. At one time, she ran a, a frosting plant for um, at General Mills, I believe. And, and now she is an organizational researcher. And at one point for her dissertation at Harvard, she followed around nurses. So she shadowed them during their day. And, and she figured out the nurses are basically professional problem solvers. You know, there's always something weird popping up that they have to deal with. And, and sometimes it's it's small stuff like they ran out of towels and they had to figure out where to get a towel for a patient. 
Sometimes it's it's bigger stuff. Like uh, Anita Tucker tells the story of a nurse who was trying to check out a new mother from the hospital ready to take her baby home. But the security anklet that they put on babies had fallen off. And so you can't check out the mom without that. So they went on this frantic search. Where's the anklet? Turns out it was just in the baby's bassinet. So easy. They checked out the mother and were done. Three hours later, the same thing happens again with a different mother. And this time they do another search. They can't find it. And so they have to go through another set of protocols uh, to resolve the situation. But they managed to get the mother out. And so when Anita Tucker first encountered these stories, she thought, hey, these are our nurses being really resourceful. They're they're scrappy. They manage to work around problems. They don't let things stand in their way. They don't go running to the boss every time something goes wrong. It's an inspiring portrait. Mm -hmm. These are the heroes. Until you realize that what she's describing is an environment that never learns, that never improves. Because when you work around problems and when you heroicize people who work around problems, what you're guaranteeing is that those problems will recur. Because you get glory by addressing them. Exactly. And it didn't occur to the nurse who checked out two mothers in three hours that had problems with the, the anklet falling off to ask, hey, why is this happening? What can we do to stop this from happening? What's the root cause? How can we make sure we never have to solve this problem again? And, and I want to be clear here. I'm not, you know, throwing stones at nurses. I, I think that this study could have been done on any profession and it would have come to the same conclusion, which is our lives are so busy and so full of emergencies and, and issues to be dealt with that we get in this trap of let's just get through it, right? Let's just work around. Let's figure out how to get by. But what we have to realize is that is a trap. You know, when we work around problems every day, we guarantee ourselves to have to deal with them again tomorrow. And so when you said, you know, what it feels like in the moment is, oh my God, where am I going to find time to go through 200 medical examiner reports? That's exactly the issue is in the short term, it is extra work. It is, you know, stepping outside of that cycle of, of workarounds, but it's basically the only ticket out of that self-perpetuating cycle of firefighting. And, and that's something, that trap of, of firefighting is something that I call in the book tunneling. It's, it's actually a term from, from some uh, psychologist in a book called Scarcity. But I love that mental image of tunneling, that that's the trap we get in where, you know, we kind of lose our peripheral vision and all we're doing is making our way forward. You know, how can I get through these problems as quickly as possible to get onto the next set? And we start to lose sight of the big questions, which is, is this tunnel going the right way? Is there an easier way to get where we're trying to go? Are, are we even pursuing the right goals? When you're in the tunnel, the only real direction is, is forward. Yeah, that totally connects and resonates, like even just biochemically. You know, it seems like, okay, all right, my back's against the wall. We got to hustle. We got to hurry. Let's do, 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 go, go, go. And then it's that vicious cycle. It is. And it's, you know, I empathize with the nurses because... What are they supposed to do? I mean, honestly, so the, the mother's trying to get checked out. They can't find the anklet. What would we advise of the nurse in that moment? I mean, is she, she supposed to conduct a root cause analysis of the circumference of the anklets and contact the manufacturer and talk about product improvements? I mean, it seems absurd. It's almost like we can't envision another reality other than the tunneling reality. But, but just to give you a feel for a way out of the tunnel, what many health systems have done is, is start to hold standing meetings, sometimes called safety huddles, where 
you know, a bunch of nurses and doctors and staffers get together in the morning. It might be a 20 minute meeting and they talk about, okay, what near misses did we have yesterday where someone was almost hurt or we almost gave somebody the wrong medication? What can we learn from that? How can we improve our processes to make sure it doesn't happen again? And then they look forward to that day. You know, what's what's coming today that's more complex than usual that we should think through? And and I think that's a perfect example of how you can escape the tunnel, even if it's just for a 20 minute meeting, because that's the forum where that nurse could have said, you know, something weird happened yesterday. We had two mothers that the same problem happened to. And that's a meeting where you could deputize a, a subgroup to work on that and figure out what was going on and, and solve it. So, so I think it's, it may be too much to ask of humanity to figure out how to get out of our tunnels because it's such a powerful instinct. But if we can even escape them for short periods, we can make much smarter choices. Mm. I'd love that. And so maybe while we're just sort of imagining workplaces at large and recurring problems that may have the potential to be solved once and for all, what are a couple of things that just leap to mind for you that we should have our eyes open toward as professionals? One thing I think has to do with a sense of, of ownership. So in the book, I talk about what's curious about downstream actions is that they're often obligatory. You know, if, uh, if someone shows up at the hospital having a heart attack, the surgeon can't opt out of, of that work. Or, you know, if a, a preschooler has an accident, uh, the, the daycare worker can't opt out of the diaper change, right? They're, when there's a problem that presents, we have to deal with it. Versus upstream problems, curiously, are, are sometimes voluntary. You know, people have to step up and say, this problem it wasn't something that I created, but I'm going to be the one to fix it. And that's something that relates to accountability. I'll give you an example from, from the, the work world. I talked to an administrator named Jeannie Forrest, who works in the Yale Law School. And when I talked to her, she was having this, this staff issue that was, she was dealing with. So there were two staffers. These are disguised names uh, for obvious reasons. The, the boss, let's call her Barbara. And uh, the direct report we'll call Dawn. So Dawn had filed a complaint about Barbara, her boss, for mm-hmm. belittling her and um, and kind of undermining her in certain situations. And this had landed on Jeannie Forrest's desk. So she she asked the two women to come in. And Jeannie Forrest said, you know, this situation is my fault. I had heard rumors that you two weren't getting along and I sensed it myself. And you know what I did? I just stuck my head in the sand and I thought, well, maybe this will go away. So, so that's on me. This is my fault. And then she turned it around and she said, I want each of you to tell the story of this situation as if you're the only one in the world responsible. And at first the women had a hard time honoring the spirit of that request. So Barbara, the boss said, well, every time I ask something of you, um, you shut me down and you, and you give me weird body language. And Jeannie Forrest said, Barbara, that sounded an awful lot like you're blaming Dawn. Can, can, can you try that again? And Barbara said, well, you know, I could have done a better job explaining. I thought that you should just accept what I said and I, I dismissed your questions, but I could have done a better job being patient. And Dawn, for her part, said, well, you know, I just accepted your huffing and puffing. But the truth was, I just really didn't understand. And I should have made it clear, hey, I'm not being resistant. I just don't understand what you want. Can you help me? 
And so they end the meeting on this kind of detente and they, they try to change their relationship. And I emailed Jeannie Forrest six weeks later just to see what had happened with this. And she wrote back and said, they're working together productively and cheerfully. It's a little insane. <laughs> and what I want to highlight about this is, is I think it's a kind of metaphor that so many times in life, we have the sense that the problems are happening to us. You know, that, that we are the inheritors or the victims of problems. But this reframing thing that Jeannie Forrest did of, you know, telling the story as if we're the only ones responsible, it helped all three of the people involved realize, hey, we have agency here. Like we could have made different choices and we can make different choices going forward. We have influence here. We have power. And I think what that means for upstream efforts is often we may find ourselves voluntarily taking charge of something that we had nothing to do with causing, you know, that, that, um, I was talking to some people from, from a large software company who, who were organizing a task force on sexual harassment. And it wasn't a problem of their making. They weren't the harassers. They had nothing to do with the environment, but they said, this is a problem that needs solving. What if we sign up to be the people who try to solve it? And, and that kind of, enlightened volunteerism is something I find very, very inspiring about upstream work. And it goes back to that notion of, of upstream heroes, you know, the, the people whose work can be invisible, even though it has profound impact. Dan, this is so much good stuff. Tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. The final thing I might mention is and this is something I feel like you could carry through with you your whole career is, is to be cognizant of the downside of measurement and metrics. You know, we live in a, a measurement obsessed culture, especially in business these days. And measurement is wonderful. I mean, it makes us more efficient. It gives us clear targets, but, but there is always a downside to measurement. And much of that downside has to do with gaming and the way that measurement alters our behaviors in ways that are sometimes good and sometimes bad. So as a, as a concrete example of the bad side, there was a, a policy passed in the UK for hospitals where they required hospitals to see patients in emergency rooms within four hours of their arrival. So enlightened intent, right? We want to make sure that patients are seen, that these crazy wait times, 12 hours, 16 hours would go away forever and that we force hospitals to reinvent their processes. So very enlightened. What happens is a lot of hospitals started doing this thing where ambulances would bring patients and stay in the parking lot until they thought the patients were within four hours of being seen. And then they would rush them inside so that they could meet the four hour rule, right? A perversion of the intent mm -hmm. of the policy, even though they technically met you know, the statistical definition of it. And that's something that you're going to see in your career again and again and again and again. Every time there is a sales incentive or a bonus offered, you can bet it's going to do some good and some bad. But I'll tell you, most of your colleagues are going to be woefully naive and think only about the good side. And you can be the one that says, hey, let's kick the tires a little bit here. You know, if one test you can run is what I call the the lazy bureaucrat test. And that is, if someone wanted to ace the measures or incentives we're setting out with the least effort possible, what would that look like? Or another one you might call the, the defiling the mission test, which is 
Imagine that we ace all of these measures that we're setting out, and yet our work ends up harming the mission, the reason we're all here. What would that look like? Like in the case of the ambulances waiting in the parking lot, it's a great example of defiling the mission. You've aced the measures, uh, but defiled the point of healthcare, which is to, to pay attention to patients and their needs. So I just want to leave that as a provocation that you can be the person whose attention to the dark side of measurement keeps your organizations out of a lot of nasty traps. But Dan, I can't resist now. You dropped a couple tests on us and those were so good. Do you have more that you can reveal? Yeah, actually, the, there's another one that I'll steal from Andy Grove, the, the former CEO of, of Intel. And that is, he said, anytime you've got a quantity measurement, so you're, you're paying people, maybe you're paying the, the janitorial crew based on square footage cleaned, or you're paying your data entry people based on the quantity of documents entered. He said, anytime you've got a quantity measurement, you've got to counterbalance it with a quality measurement. Because what you got to realize is if you incentivize people to clean more floors, what comes part and parcel with that is they're going to do a worse job per square foot in the service of getting to a larger area. Or they're going to go so fast on the data entry that, that they're making lots of mistakes for the sake of getting through more documents. So the way to balance the scales is, is to combine quantity with quality, where quality might be, you know, some kind of spot checking of, of how good the rooms look after they're cleaned or with data entry to make sure that there's some metric that specifies, you know, how, uh, how good the precision was between the entry and the original document. And I, ever since I became aware of that test from Andy Grove, I've started seeing situations where really smart people put it into place. Like even in the police force in LA, you know, for years, police were adopting these metrics of reduce crime, reduce crime, reduce crime. And that leads to things like stop and frisk. And, you know, stop and frisk uh, is effective at reducing crime, but it has this just grotesque side consequence of subjecting a lot of innocent people to, to abusive treatment. And so they've learned to counterbalance, you know, the focus on reducing crime with uh, a measure of community trust. You know, how much do you trust the police? Do you feel like they're doing a good job looking out for safety? And that's a beautiful way to, to kind of restore uh, uh, order or, or a sense of balance to the work. So that's another one I would add to the, to the quiver. Mm, oh, that's good. Well, then, um, could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? My favorite quote, this is from a guy named Paul Batalden, who's a healthcare expert. He said, every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. And that quote has become just like a brainworm for me. And it, it, it's so, enlightening because it tells you in situations like Chicago public schools that, that at one time failed 48% of its students, it tells you the way CPS is set up is designed to fail half its students. So if we're going to get different results, we have to change the system. But it, I think it's also true in our own lives. I mean, I think that's what's so powerful about this quote is, is if you find yourself perpetually dealing with the same dissatisfactions or the same frustrations, it's a sign that the system is set up wrong. How do you change the system? You know, we can't just hope our way to a different result. And how about a favorite book? This is definitely not my favorite book, but I thought in the wake of Clay Christensen's recent passing, uh, he wrote a wonderful book called How Will You Measure Your Life that I think uh, is a great excuse for all of us, you know, just to, to be self-referential here in this podcast, to step out of the tunnel and think about the big picture and, and where we're headed and 
Uh, are we making the right micro choices to get the kind of macro results we want in our lives? Mm -hmm. And a favorite tool? Let me give you a small one. There's an online tool called Toggle, T-O-G-G-L, and it has turned me into a time tracker. And that's what it is. It's time tracking software that allows you to just see how you're spending your time and, and devote it to categories. And, and I'll tell you, I am not like a natural personal productivity person. Okay. I, I am not the kind of person who puts labels on file folders. So, so this was unnatural for me. So take heart if you're a naturally unorganized person and it has really changed my day-to-day -day work. It's made me much more cognizant of how I spend my time and I've gotten strategic about it. Like I'll actually from time to time, just do a check-in and see, am I putting hours against the things that are most important to me? And, and that little tool made it a lot easier. Mm, thank you. And how about a favorite habit? I'm going to throw out my coffee shop habit. And look, I know everybody's going to have, have a different one, but something about going to the same environment really brings out the best work for me. And I think it's because it's just like everything in the environment at the coffee shop now is a trigger or a cue to me to get into writing mode. It's like it, it helps me get over that hump because I have so many associations with the look of the place and the smell of the place and the taste of the coffee. And it's like my sensory environment is helping me replicate that state of getting into to thoughtful writing mode. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? They quote it back to you often. With this new book, what I found that resonates with people is this idea that the need for heroism is usually evidence of systems failure. If you think about, you know, we celebrate a lifeguard who, who jumped into the pool at the YMCA and, and saved a drowning child. Obviously, we want to celebrate that lifeguard. They may have saved a life, but, but the need for them to jump in the pool and do the saving may be evidence that something was wrong with the way things were operated. You know, was the lifeguard's chair too far from the pool and they had blind spots or, you know, was the lifeguard on their phone or uh, was the lifeguard, you know, looking at something interesting happening in the pool and they had dropped their discipline of scanning the pool every 10 seconds. So I think we should distrust heroics in a way that if, if we're repeatedly relying on heroics to get the job done, there may be something bigger at stake. Perfect. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? Come visit me at upstreambook.com and there's resources on the site that are free. There's a lot more about the book if you're interested. So yeah, come there. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? I would say in the next week, let me challenge you to find a way to get out of the tunnel that you're in, whether that is just taking an hour off of work and going and sitting in a coffee shop with your phone off and thinking about the big picture, whatever that looks like for you, escape the tunnel and think about how you might knock down some of those recurring problems and irritants in your life. Dan, this has been a treat. Thank you. I wish you tons of luck with Upstream and, and all your adventures. Thanks so much, Pete. It's been a real interesting conversation. I really loved how Dan shared that, boy, the core or the crux of this thing where the rubber meets the road is you're thinking, I'm just too busy with all the fires I'm fighting to handle this and solve it upstream. But if you do make that investment, boy, it makes a world of a difference. And I think that is a theme we hear on the show repeatedly. If you take a moment, you take a breath, you do some good thinking and proactive investing of time and thought then you can really put some things into play that pay huge dividends over time. So how can you solve that upstream and be a hero, not just in the moment, but a hero 
for generations as you use the system or software or process or solution that you're able to generate when you did some of that deep thinking, deep work and made it happen. Again, those show notes, transcript and links are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F551. I hope if you haven't already, you'll push the subscribe button. You'll catch our next guest. He's been on the list since this podcast was conceived. That's right. I had this man's name in my head and on some lists. It's Pat Lynchoni, famous for the five dysfunctions of a team and his other business fables. And we are discussing the motive that makes leadership effective versus ineffective and organizational health. A lot of goodies. I hope to catch you there. And peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.